Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, tonight uh, we will be uh, thinking about uh, something where the views of our society and the views of your word are opposed. Uh, we pray you will give us understanding and conviction of the truth of your word, more conviction of its goodness, that this is your word, our God to us, to give us a life of flourishing. And our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray uh, in my weakness you would help me speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, tonight I want to focus on one particular issue uh, that this next section of 1 Corinthians raises for us. And it's this. Uh, why does our society promote same-sex sexual relationships as good and wholesome when, as you heard from the reading, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 is particularly, God in his word says that like all sexual immorality, that is all sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman, such activity, if persevered in, will exclude you from God's eternal kingdom. Uh, you could, of course, flip that around and ask why does Scripture condemn the practice of same-sex sexual relationships when our society says such activity should not just be tolerated but affirmed. Now, the cost of this uh, focus will be not dealing with 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8. I'm happy to talk with you about that later if you wish, but as I suspect, uh, not many of you are at this moment engaged in status-driven civil litigation with each other, because uh, you can't afford it anyhow. And as we all live now in a society where same-sex sexual activity is not only being normalised, but encouraged and celebrated to the extent that encouraging those who experience desire for someone of the same sex to live a chaste life to not act on that desire is being criminalised as a suppression practice, I think that makes it worth pausing and asking why God's word and thus Christians faithful to God's word and our society have diametrically opposed views on same-sex sexual activity. One, our society's consensus says same-sex sexual activity is good and supports it. Reckoning such a support is life-affirming, the loving thing to do. The other, scripture, saying it's sin and therefore life-destroying. And so calling people to repent of sin and follow Jesus, even if it means embracing a chaste life where sexual temptation is not acted on but resisted, is the loving thing to do. So two opposing views of what is the loving thing to do. And you'll notice that throughout this talk the focus will actually be on activity, not orientation, because scripture speaks to the activity. And so the talk will be about activity and desire, sin and temptation. Although there will be some, con uh, some comments on the modern concept of orientation. Now to answer the question why God's word and thus Christians faithful to God's word and our society have diametrically opposed views on same-sex sexual activity, I want to do three things tonight. 
Firstly, look at the teaching of Scripture to confirm that same-sex sexual activity is sin. For some, in keeping with the spirit of our age and often their own desires, want to suggest that the Bible does not condemn homosexual activity as it is now understood. Then I'll look at the two opposing worldviews that underlie these two opposing attitudes to same-sex sexual activity and ask, which is true, which accords with reality? And I'll also ask, which actually is better, offers more hope to us all, including those experiencing same-sex desire? And finally, I want to think about how we encourage each other whether our sexual desire is for people of the same or the opposite sex to live godly, pure lives. Knowing that we'll talk more about that next week when we look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 and how we can relate wisely to those who hold opposing views to us, especially to those experiencing same-sex desire or practising same-sex sexual relationships. And... Uh, uh, at the bottom of the and on the back page of the outline, uh, there's a whole series of resources, and uh, I just draw your attention to three. If you want a very good, comprehensive view of the biblical position, uh, Thomas Schmidt's book, Straight and Narrow is Good. If you want a good way, in a sense, of thinking about that and how you relate to people with same-sex attraction, Sam Albury's Is God Anti-Gay is very good. And then there's a website, Living Out, which is a British website uh, run by, you know, Sam Albury and Ed Shaw and people like that, which is full of helpful resources on the topic. Now, as we set out, let me say this talk may be a complete disaster, so just be ready for that. Uh, that is, uh, there's too much to do and, you know, too much to think about. But I thought it's actually better to start the conversation and engage in it than not talk about what, in a sense, is a very real and current issue. And I also think that this is the right framework in which to engage with it, even if we don't get through it all. Firstly, clarity about the teaching of Scripture about God's Word. Secondly, uh, recognising that the discussion is actually much bigger than approving or disapproving of this or that behaviour, that it is actually about understandings of reality. Uh, that's what, in a sense, gives the force and the emotional drive uh, to what is sometimes a conflict. And then thirdly, uh, seeing our response, uh, uh, it needs to be both individual and communal as we encourage each other to live the lives God wants us to do. So firstly, uh, to the teaching of Scripture. Uh, the context for any understanding of Scripture's teaching on how our sexual nature should be expressed is God's creation and the recounting of God's creative activity in Genesis 1 and 2. And so in Genesis 1, 26, it says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Humanity, Adam, mankind, is from the beginning male and female. 
The them of verse 28 is always male and female. And only as male and female are they image of God, and only as male and female can they fill God's intention for humanity, verse 28, in creation. It's only as male and female that they can be fruitful and multiply. Male and female is the essential and obligatory differentiation in humanity. There is no other that embraces all humanity and that is imprinted in every cell of our bodies. It's a difference within what is one that's not meant to lead to separation or competition, but to unity, a differentiation contributing to life. And as we read on in Genesis, Genesis 2, 22 to 24 that you heard read, we see that fruitfulness is realised through a one flesh relationship between a man and a woman, which our Lord tells us in Matthew 19 is meant to be permanent, where he also tells us that what's written there in Genesis is spoken by God. And in Genesis 2, we see that marriage between a man and a woman is God's provision for both the well-being and the continuation of the human race. The sexual nature of both man and woman is expressed in this union and is a means of both uniting the man and the woman, binding them to each other and making their union fruitful and so creating families, giving in God's intention a secure context in which children can be nurtured. And of course the begetting and nurture of children is something on which our race and our society depends. We know that both that union, of course, and the families that come from it are now marred by sin. But just as our Lord Jesus does with divorce, we still return to creation in the face of dealing with human sin for God's intention, knowing that's best for us. Now, the next uh, reference that's important in this discussion is, of course, Genesis 19 and the activity of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read it, but it's... This understanding of God's creation intent that actually helps us to understand the horror with which Scripture portrays the activity of the men of Sodom and uh, later on of Gibeah. You see, it's not just their violence that is the measure of their sin. It's their high-handed repudiation of boundaries, of an order God has created for the expression of sexual desire. This emphasises their pride, and their heedlessness of God, their creator. Seen also, says Ezekiel, in not caring for the poor. People made like them in creation in God's image. And then we come, uh, as we read through the Bible, to Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. Leviticus 18 says, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. And Leviticus 20 reads, If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. It is this understanding of God's intention that our created sexual nature should find expression in the marriage of a man and a woman, that the law in Leviticus seeks to establish, protect and maintain in Israel. These sections of Leviticus say that part of being God's holy people, distinct from the nations around about and separated to God as his people, is having your life, including your practice of marriage and sex, conform to the order of the creator God. 
So marriage in these chapters is protected by excluding from the one flesh relationship those who already reckoned your flesh, like your sister or your mother or your aunt or something like that, either by birth or marriage. And sexual expression is protected by forbidding same-sex practice or bestiality, the crossing of boundaries established by God. And we should recognise that same-sex sexual activity was a characteristic of the pagan nations that surround Israel and in New Testament times. And God has consistently expected his people to be different. And one Old Testament scholar, Wenham, writes... The Old Testament's rejection of all kinds of homosexual practice is apparently unique in the ancient world. Israel's repudiation of homosexual intercourse arises out of its doctrine of creation. To allow the legitimacy of homosexual acts would frustrate the divine purpose and deny the perfection of God's provision of two sexes to support and complement each other. Now what happens as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Well, sometimes it's said that the Lord Jesus didn't comment on homosexual activity and we'll return to this. But our Lord does say in Matthew 15 that sexual immorality, that's what it's uh, translated there, sexual immoralities, is sin and defiles a person. And in the Lord Jesus' time, all that was prohibited in those chapters of Leviticus was reckoned as sexual immorality, gathered together under that word. Uh, When we move to the epistles, the letters that instruct Christian churches about how to live as believers in their societies, which were pagan societies, we see a continuation of the Old Testament's prohibitions. So in Romans 1 we read, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, And the men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And their error, if you read through Romans 1, is idolatry. Creation continues here to be the context for understanding Scripture's teaching on same-sex sexual activity. It's an understanding Romans is reflecting. Same-sex activity is against this created order, a just punishment in the disordering of relationship between those made in God's image for their disordering the relationship with their creator by worshipping idols, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Same-sex sexual activity was known in the first century and its practice was a widespread pagan activity, involving the full ranges of contexts for same-sex sexual activity, not just pederasty or prostitution, but including long-term relationships which were reckoned normal and natural by some. And if you want to read more about that, that book, Sexegesis, uh, there, page 96, it's got a number of very helpful essays. Now, what Paul shows in Romans 1 is disapproval of female-female and male-to-male sexual acts regardless of the sexual preference of the the partners, whether they are predominantly same-sex attracted or otherwise. Paul's argument is that departures from the norm of God's creation represents defiance against the creator and foreshadow the divine wrath soon to follow. 
to suppress the truth about the one God who made the heavens and the earth invariably leads to a rejection of God's design for sex as a means of partnership and procreation between men and women. And nature there is understood by God, by Paul, to be God's creation intention. And those who indulge in sexual practices against nature are seen as defying the creator and demonstrating their alienation from him. And the next uh, reference is that round Corinthians 6 reference uh, that you heard. Uh, Just as the creation order lies behind Paul's language in Romans, the language of Leviticus lies behind the way Paul describes same-sex activity in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1.10. In the CSB it says, Don't be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers or males who have sex with males. That translation, males who have sex with males, actually translates two terms. Uh, They're both used in 1 Corinthians 6. One is malakoi, for the passive partner, and the other term is the term arsenokoitai, which it's thought that Paul has uh, coined, and that's used for the active partner. And the use of those two terms together reinforces the point that it's all same-sex sexual practice which is seen as alien to honouring the creator God, seen as sin. So from a look at those references, the conclusion really is, is that while our society may have divorced sexual expression from marriage with ideas of recreational uncommitted sex, and while it may have divorced marriage from procreation. Scripture never has. The context for sexual expression is the marriage of a man and a woman to each other, a lifelong union that has inherently the possibility of procreation, even though, as we know, sin has confused things and we live in a marred world where some can't conceive. It's the uniform witness of Scripture that same-sex sexual practice is a transgression of the order God established at creation and is sin. It's never condoned. There is never a positive role model. There are no same-sex couples in Scripture despite attempts to find them and assertions to the contrary, which actually just speak of our own age's sexualisation of friendship to the destruction of friendship. Scripture speaks unanimously against same-sex sexual practice. And these are not isolated injunctions reflecting a primitive psychology. They reflect a commitment both to the maintenance of order by distinction and a commitment to the exclusive one-flesh union of a man and a woman established at creation as both the means of the transmission of life and the foundation of families. The union of two members who are inescapably different and not interchangeable, which itself becomes in Ephesians 5 a model of Christ's relationship with his people. So it matters to the gospel. The testimony is clear and consistent, but it actually has been the subject of concerted attempts to discredit and marginalise it. And I'm going to look now briefly at some of those. Firstly, there's a suggestion 
that the scripture's condemnation of same-sex sexual activity is not part of the core of scripture's teaching. Just one section of the Old Testament and occasional asides of Paul in the New Testament illustrating the sin of pagan societies. So they then say it's not very important, not central to the message of Jesus, an assertion they support by the observation that Jesus never explicitly mentioned it. Now, that is not the case. The scripture's teaching on same-sex sexual practice is fully integrated with scripture's views on the relationship of men and women from creation and fully consistent with its teaching on sexual expression, including scripture's condemnation of fornication, which is sex outside marriage, and adultery. The scripture's teaching that the only place for sexual expression is within marriage, understood as a public commitment to lifelong faithfulness of a man to a woman, an understanding Jesus explicitly endorsed and endorsed as coming from the Creator. So it is fully integrated with Scripture's teaching. And the fact that Jesus didn't mention it, well, Jesus didn't mention gambling or wife-beating or paedophilia, and they are all sins. It's just that same-sex practice peculiarly amongst first century peoples, was not a particular issue in Jewish society. They took scripture seriously. But Jesus, as I've said, didn't condemn pornea sexual immorality, and that includes same-sex sexual activity. Then people suggest that our turning to the Old Testament says is inconsistent, that reliance on the teaching of the Old Testament is inconsistent and selective. Why, it's asked, do we eat shellfish when Leviticus also forbids that? Uh, why don't we stone adulterers? Why not a prohibition on sex during menstruation? Why single out this sin from the holiness and purity regulations? Well, we know Jesus did make all foods clean and the New Testament has never seen Christians as establishing a state and mandating civil and criminal punishment. So there's no thought that we would say stone adulterers. Sex and menstruation probably actually have to do with the role of blood in sacrifice and its power to make unclean. And we finish with blood sacrifices thanks to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and sexagesis has a good section on this. In relation to same-sex sexual activity, what we see is that the prohibitions of Leviticus are endorsed and repeated in the New Testament. And God's law, while fulfilled for us in Christ, is still the guide as to how we should live, still informs our understanding of what it is to love, and is still an expression of the will of the Creator God, and we still live in this creation, this age. And resurrection, and, and with it the intrusion of the age to come into this age, is not an abrogation but actually a vindication of God's moral order which believers in Jesus' resurrection are committed to. Then it's suggested that the writers of the New Testament, particularly Paul, were operating with an outdated psychology. You know, that we know now know that people are born that way, that they're gay or lesbian or any number of alternate sexualities. <coughs> and they say... Paul didn't address, didn't know this, and so the New Testament never addresses the circumstances of those who are homosexual, that is, whose sexuality is their identity. Now, that's true. Scripture condemns same-sex sexual activity, 
But this begs the bigger question. Why do people find identity in sexuality? And we'll address that when we think about the worldviews underlying the endorsement of same-sex sexual activity. But let's briefly pause to ask about what born that way actually means, because we hear a lot of that. Uh, Well, all complex human behaviours will have a quantifiable contribution made by a person's genetic makeup. That's true. But there is no gay gene. Twin studies are not conclusive, and post-mortem differences may be the product, not the cause, of same-sex activity. And you may have heard of all of those. Now, Dennis Alexander, in the book's in the bibliography, an immunologist and geneticist writes after surveying the evidence, it may be therefore concluded that no one causal mechanism is both necessary and sufficient to explain the whole gamut of human sexual attraction. Sexual attraction is a highly complex trait and it seems likely that across the variety of human sexes and cultures, different influences are more important at different times. So he says there's no point in looking for the cause of same-sex attraction. It does not exist, the cause. This negative conclusion is important because many assume that the etiology of same-sex attraction (coughs) is known and straightforward. It is not. It's not a question of being born that way that genes explain this behaviour. Born that way is a slogan that's meant to justify an activity and remove shame and stigmatisation from those who practice it. But it's actually a perilous strategy to win acceptance, even if it appears to have persuaded many. Because what it does is introduce genetic determinism, which says... Your genes decide what you do. They decide who you are. They, they, you don't actually have choices. You are just doing what your genes tell you. Now, that demeans and robs of choice and in some will provoke, not alleviate, anxiety because it suggests those who may even fleetingly experience same-sex attraction, and many do in their adolescent years, far more than actually go on to practice same-sex sexual activity. It suggests that those who experience same-sex attraction can live no other life and find no satisfaction in life unless they're actively practicing same-sex sexual activity. It's saying that their fate and their future, even if it's not a future they want, is determined by their genes. So they may not want that life. They might be upset by the thought of it or the activity. In suggesting no choice, born that way, actually imprisons and leaves with a bleak future. Further, an is, this is the way things are, never equals an ought. Genes are not a justification for behaviour. There is always a decision involved, a decision of our wills. And if they accuse us of inconsistency, as an explanation for behaviour, this is very inconsistently applied. As there is a genetic component in almost everything, why not excuse belief in God or homophobia or destructive anger on that same basis, born that way? As we'll see, the biblical understanding has more dignity and hope. 
Now, associated with this view of the psychology of same-sex activity is the suggestion that scripture only condemns certain types of same-sex sexual activity, those associated with idolatry or violence or which are inauthentic, heterosexuals engaging in same-sex sexual relationships or prostitution. Now, that is not true. (coughs) The way the condemnations of the prohibitions of scripture are framed Uh, The term a male used in Leviticus 18 and female, it's undifferentiated. The prohibitions of scripture apply to all male-on-male sexual activity. Now, in particular, people want to say that the prohibition does not apply to loving, committed relationships. And this is actually saying that a certain feature of the context in which same-sex sexual activity is practised justifies what scripture condemns and scripture clearly condemns the activity. Part of this view is saying that love is all that matters which received quite an airing in the marriage debate where it was employed you know reductionistically isolating one feature of the marriage relationship to justify the whole relationship. But Christian teaching has always said love can be misdirected and corrupted. St Augustine's analysis of the fall is actually in terms of love, turning from love of God to love of self. The rightness of love and its right proportion depends upon the object of love. And true love can never be divorced from truth. Where it is, your love can be damaging to the one loved and there's a whole other discussion there and of course love of God which is the context for our love of each other obeys God now all these are attempts to avoid the plain teaching of scripture you may have come across them and what has been the universal prohibition of the Christian church for at least 1900 years same-sex sexual activity like all sexual activity outside the marriage union of a man with a woman is sin And same-sex sexual desire is temptation to sin. And we're indulged in, say, in same-sex porn, things like that. It becomes sin just as lust for someone who is not your wife is sin. As our Lord says in Matthew 5, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now, having said that, we also have to remind ourselves that 1 Corinthians 6 lists same-sex sexual activity as a sin in a context of reminding us that it, like the other sins mentioned there, like greed or drunkenness, can be forgiven on the authority of Jesus, on the basis of his death on the cross, where he became, as you've learned from 1 Corinthians, our wisdom from God, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Those who repent and trust Jesus, says Paul, are washed. They're cleansed of defilement. They're sanctified. They're fitted by Jesus to live for God, set apart to him at peace in his presence. And they're justified, sin forgiven, reckoned just in the judgment in the context of being changed by the Spirit of God and as a changed person given a new heart. To be a follower of Jesus is to avoid this sin and other misuses of the gift of our sexual nature, to flee from sexual immorality, which we'll look at next week in more detail.
To be a follower of Jesus is to not nurture the desire and to live like many others a chaste life. And many do, not just those tempted with same-sex desire. Widows, single people, divorced. And what we see in Matthew 19 is that being single for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of God's rule of our lives, just as we see in 1 Corinthians 7, where the single person can be devoted to the Lord, being single for the sake of Christ is an honourable state, not a diminished one. An honourable state lived in by the Lord Jesus and Paul. So scripture's view of same-sex sexual activity is clearly different from our world's. But what's becoming clear is that from the world's point of view, this difference is actually not to be tolerated. Why does our society want affirmation only? Why do we now experiencing the evangelical zeal to suppress alternate understandings of human sexual expression than the one our society legitimates? Why the belief that to advocate chastity outside the marriage of a man and a woman is harmful? So let's now ask the bigger question, uh, the worldview question, uh, the understanding of reality that lies behind the world's claim that sexual freedom is the key to authentic personhood, to human flourishing. And so anything that resists sexual freedom is wrong. And I think it's helpful to summarise a worldview under some big headings. And for this, I've chosen the view of God, the view of the human person, and the view of good and evil, just to give us a handle on that. Okay. Uh, and I can see I'm, I'm, I, I hopefully we'll get to the end of this section, but section three we'll, we'll probably address next week. And I hope you're still with me, uh, because it actually is a pressing issue. So what's our society's view of God? Now, the current hostility to Christian teaching in our society is part of the secularist drive to remove the influence of God from public life. So it actually embodies a worldview where God is non-existent and matter and material processes is all there is and we're just matter and, you know, we'll die and decay. But actually, paganism, as we've seen, has consistently supported same-sex sexual practice. And the reality is it makes little difference what is said to be believed about God. Whether God is non-existent or God is dumb and idle of our making who can't speak and make his will known or act in the world, it, it, it makes little difference because the truth is the view of God is very secondary in this discussion in the world's understanding to the view of the human person. For our age is profoundly anthropocentric. That is, we think ourselves to be the centre of reality the source of meaning and whatever, there, whatever truth there is in the world. It all starts with us. And so Truman observes that there's actually in this a rejection of any and every sacred order as these are seen as narratives of oppression developed to keep the weak, the minority, in subjugation. So an understanding of God and his creating an involvement in the world and no longer the source of meaning of right or wrong, those things derive from us. And that leads us to the view of the human person, which is actually central here. The view of the human person has been 
what they say, desacralised, that is, robbed of any sanctity. We have no externally conveyed imparted meaning to human life. We actually have to now all find meaning in ourselves. And so, he says, there's a focus on inwardness or the inner psychological life as decisive for who we think we are. And that's true increasingly. People are told to turn inwards to find their meaning, identity and purpose. In a sense, they're taught that I am whoever I think I am. Or in Rosaria Butterfield's words, the idea of the person that's actually being promoted is of an autonomous, that is a law to themselves, freely choosing individual who finds meaning in no one but him or her self, dependent on no one for meaning just themselves. Now that understanding of the person, that turning inward, leads to prioritising our desires and feelings for determining who we truly are. And you may have noticed this, feelings become very, very significant. They tell you who you truly are. And to not express these feelings and desires is then inauthentic. And to not permit them to be expressed is then harmfully oppressive, a denial of our reality. And within a context where life is just lived for the moment because there's no eternity and the pleasures of the immediate are all that matter, this prioritising of desires and feelings leads to sexual desire being seen as ultimately decisive for who we are. For sexual desire is often the strongest desire we experience. And it's also seen as the most authentic, especially same-sex desire, for it represents a decisive rejection of social expectations, the clearest case of being true to yourself. And so it's in this context that your sexuality is your identity, your truest expression of your autonomy, your being a law to yourself. And hence the world celebrates the coming out narrative as a celebration of personal freedom and authenticity, and they are the two things that most matter. Now, when we see this understanding of the human person, we see that actually born that way, uh, while a persuasive yet potentially destructive slogan, is actually not at the heart of the movement. It's an after-the-fact justification to make it more acceptable to those who might object, find it ethically displeasing, and actually probably at odds with autonomous, meaning-creating freedom, attention within the movement itself. Now, what's the view of, with this view of God, this view of the person, what's the view of good and evil? Where a sense of psychological well-being, this is Truman, is the purpose of life, therapy supplants morality. Or perhaps better, therapy is morality. And anything that achieves that sense of well-being is good as long as it meets the rather weak condition that it doesn't inhibit the happiness of others or that of a greater number of others. So now the good to be pursued is happiness, understood as an inner sense of psychological well-being. The good is to be your authentic, fulfilled 
self, of which, of course, you can only be the, you alone can be the judge. Nobody else can make that judgment for you. And there is no right or wrong external to yourself. And to suggest there is <coughs> to which an individual should conform is actually to oppress them. If I am whoever I think I am, and if my inward sense of psychological well-being is my only moral imperative, then the imposition of external, prior or static categories is nothing other than an act of imperialism, an attempt to restrict my freedom or to make me inauthentic. And this understanding of the good has given rise to certain core values that you may well see arising in conversation. Firstly, freedom then equality, then dignity. Freedom. Everyone now, because that's the good, must be free to express themselves because it's only in expressing themselves that they can realise the good. And the Supreme Court of the States has actually enshrined that. It said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Freedom, then equality or fairness. Everyone's constructed identity must be treated the same, and we're only equal if our constructed identities are treated the same. And thirdly, dignity, and that is having your authentic self affirmed. In this understanding of the good, the bad then is oppression understood as a fundamentally psychological category and sexual codes as its prior, the primary instruments of oppression. Further, as people's views embody who they are, to disagree with them is to reject them. Disagreement becomes hatred as its rejection of the person. Assault becomes a psychologic, becomes psychological, something that damages the inner self or hinders that sense of psychological well-being that lies at the heart of the therapeutic. And you may have come across things like microaggressions and things like that. That's words that you might speak even unknowingly that actually damage somebody's sense of psychological well-being. Uh, right. And so, so these become the, the key, so the key ethical values. Good, personal happiness of which you are alone the judge. And with that understanding, freedom, and, and that, uh, personal happiness depending on your feelings and desires. And with that, freedom, equality, dignity as they define it. Now, how does this compare with the Christian worldview? And I'll try and make that, uh, this, well, and again, I'll just organise it. That'll be quite selective under those three headings. The view of God, the view of the human person and the view of the good. And as we'll see, it's quite different, isn't it? I mean, we think God is not dumb. He speaks. He's the creator on whom our lives depend. He is living and active. He's actually the judge who can uphold his decisions and to whom we're accountable. And we think he is good, not just because we experience his goodness in creation, but we come to know his goodness in his care for us in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to give us life. So quite a different view. Our view is actually theocentric. It, our understanding of reality revolves around God and who he is and what he says. Now, in that understanding, we've got quite a different view of the human person. The human person is 
created and is created as an embodied person. We are animated clay. And that gives us certain authority to our bodies and to created biology. There is a sense of nature. And of guess, we're mortal and we're sinful. But on this understanding, we have an identity that comes from outside ourselves. We have an identity as created people in the image of God. And so the dignity that I have does not come from within me intrinsically, but it actually comes from God creating me and designating me as someone made in his image who expects others to treat me with, in a sense, the respect that they would show to God, the one whose image I am. And that's true for us all. So our identity is created in the image of God. And if we're believers, we have an identity as redeemed, as children of God, which is a gift of God to us. But again, it's a gift that gives us extraordinary and enduring dignity. So our sense of self comes from looking out to God and his creation and his salvation, not from looking in. And our sense of reality doesn't come from trying to find our feelings and desires, but actually listening to our God. And so our sense of self is not of an isolated, autonomous individual who is threatened by other selves. No, our sense of self is people made in God's image, redeemed by Christ. And that means that believers have a given and therefore stable identity. And that's actually a wonderful gift. This identity is ours whether we're sick, whether we're unconscious, whether we're confused, whether we're down. It actually does not depend on us or our feeling. And we don't need to sustain it in the pressures of the world. It's actually a wonderful thing to be given an identity like that. And what's our view of the good? Well, our view of the good is that we are created for loving relationships with God, our creator, and with others. And that love actually has content from nature, from God's creating of us, and from revelation. And so we think there actually is objective right and wrong revealed by God that actually doesn't depend on us and our approval. And... Because we live in God's world and right and wrong, justice and righteousness are maintained by God, it's pursuing right that leads to the life of human flourishing and pursuing wrong which is destructive. And this is, is actually maintained by God. And because there's objective right and wrong, we can disagree with others and rather than that being hatred, it can actually be love because it gives an opportunity for either us or them to change their minds, to conform their thinking and their behaviour then to what God says is right. It's quite a different view. Now, we can see that these two worldviews are in stark contrast, aren't they? 
And then the question really is, which is true and which is better? Right, which is true and which is better? And here we have to remember that reality isn't brought into being by our world words. There is a certain givenness to the way the world is and to the way we are because we are embodied people. And we would say that God has acted in reality. The true and living God does true and real things in the world. He speaks and then acts. And in speaking and acting, he shows he is the living and only God. And scriptures are not just God's words, but a record of God's actions. God does not mind putting himself to the reality test. And we have to remember the gospel is not just an invitation, but a declaration of events that either did or didn't happen. It's a declaration that Jesus has died and that he has risen. And that's important, you see, because death is actually, the really, for humanity, it's the ultimate objective reality. You see, life and death are a discontinuity. They're not points on a gradation. You can't talk yourself out of dying. Uh, That's why so many people die, despite their best desires, right? Right, you can't talk yourself out of dying. It's something that happens. And life from death is actually not something you can talk yourself into either. Jesus has subjected himself and his truth to the life from death test. He said he'd die and then he rose again. And that's actually been witnessed in history. Jesus speaks the truth. And what he has demonstrated in history then finds confirmation in our experience as we actually trust the word of God. We receive the spirit. We receive transformation. More than that, that word with its teaching on right and wrong can also be confirmed in our experience too. Scripture says, as you sow, so you reap. And that's actually true. You live long enough and you see people making bad choices, reaping bad consequences, despite the odd exception that's dealt with in Psalm 73, and people making good choices, reaping good consequences. So in a sense, God, through his action in Christ, has actually demonstrated his truthfulness and his reality. And that's a great contrast, isn't it, with the transparent creatureliness and mortality of those who advocate human autonomy and finding meaning in yourself. They die and their words die with them, even though, of course, in claiming to create meaning for themselves, they are claiming godlike powers. They are claiming godlike powers where they are demonstrably not God. And so if you ask, which of these worldviews is true? I think you'd actually have to say the one that has shown life from the dead. Right? In history and in experience. Which is actually better? 
which really promotes human flourishing. Is human flourishing seen in giving yourself to do whatever you feel like, to fulfilling every sexual desire you have without any boundaries? Well, actually, no. That's human enslavement and destruction. But the Christian worldview actually is so much better, isn't it? It brings truth in our confusion. (laughs) And if we look into ourselves, we will be confused. But it brings the truth of Jesus, his word which is sure and eternal. It brings hope in our mortality. It brings forgiveness that can deal with guilt And sexual sin always brings guilt because it uses others or uses ourselves, right? It brings a stable identity that is sustained in relationships of love with meaning and worth. It brings a dignity that actually comes from outside us and is guaranteed by God. It brings real freedom. Remember, Scripture says if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Not free to do whatever you want, but freed from your slavery to desire. And yes, it brings an equality, equality of both sinner and saint before the living Creator God. Now, that's all that we can do tonight and probably more than we should have done. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. We can, we can go on living faithful lives. But as I say, I think it's worth starting to have the conversation because if you hold fast to biblical faithfulness, you will be seen as harmful. Okay? Harmful to your same-sex attracted friends. If you hold fast to biblical faithfulness... You will be seen, if you're a same-sex attracted person, as irrationally denying yourself satisfaction and happiness in this life. You need to know what is behind the drive, not just to normalise but affirm same-sex activity. And you need to be able to assess, is it true, is it better? Right? And it's not Christian truth. A Jesus who came and entered our world, who had real flesh and blood like us, who experienced the desires we do, who lived a perfect life, who gave himself on the cross out of love for us in all our confusion and messed upness, and whom God raised from the dead. He's actually trustworthy and knowing him is worth everything because he will actually raise you after this life to eternal life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, a long talk about a difficult subject. Our Father, we pray in your mercy you would give us conviction about your word. But more than that, we pray that you would give us conviction of your reality that this world is yours, that you are creator and judge, and that you are known in your Son, the Lord Jesus. 
and that in knowing him we can know that you are good and your love is certain and sure and you can give us life now and forever. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us to remember the good from the tonight and forget the dross, but above all, you would move us to live faithful lives to our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.